Like you, I get a lot of emails. Plenty are nonsense, like the one I got the other day, asking if I had any stories coming up about bidets. Mercifully, I do not. But the occasional email can be really surprising. This book that a random PR person told me about and then shipped to me is haunting. The book is about the forgotten story of a talented young female amateur golfer in the 1930s and 40s. Not just qualified for a few U.S. women's amateurs talented, but better. Like, she beat Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias talented. It's about her rise to fame, her life on the road, how seriously America took women's amateur golf back then. But it's also about how it all ended suddenly, horrifically, unfairly in the middle of the night in the Lexington Country Club apartments where she lived with her mother, and how a community, stunned by her death, searched for her killers and brought them to justice. I'm Keely Levins, and this is Local Knowledge. Today, we're talking about arguably the most tragic golf story you've never heard, the murder of Marion Miley. And as a warning, this episode does include references to gun violence. Meet the American ladies before the men. Captain Mrs. Ver, Mrs. Cruz, Mrs. Cheney, Miss Patty Burr, Miss Marion Miley, Mrs. Hill, Miss Charlotte Glattick. Marion wasn't just an accomplished golfer in the 1930s and 40s. She was a major celebrity. She won the Kentucky Women's Amateur six times. She won the Augusta Invitational twice, which included a 6-4 and four win over Babe Diedrichsen, who would go on to become the dominant golfer of her era, winning 10 LPGA majors. Marion won the Mexican Women's Amateur, the Women's Western Amateur, twice, the Women's Southern Amateur. Basically, she won every big amateur women's golf tournament that was available to her, except the U.S. Women's Amateur. She qualified for and played in six U.S. Women's Ams, only ever getting as far as the semifinals. She had friends everywhere, some of whom were famous, including Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. And beyond being successful, Marion had something else going for her that made her popular. She was beautiful. Newspapers mentioned her looks often when writing about her. One paper claimed Marion was the most photographed golfer in the world. This claim is a pretty powerful one, given where amateur women's golf is right now. While there is an incredible amount of talent in the amateur women's game at the moment, you can't argue that any one current player has reached celebrity status. If you look up photos of women's amateur tournaments from Marion's era, the 30s and 40s, you'll find galleries full of people, crowding around tee boxes, half a dozen or more people deep. As I'm writing this, the U.S. women's amateur is being played, and a feverish gallery is missing. Why is that? What about women's amateur golf back in Marion's day made it such a sought-after spectacle? Well, for one, the LPGA Tour didn't exist yet. So amateur golf was the premier women's golf circuit. But still, it feels like not only has Marion's story been lost, so has this era of women's golf. Here's Beverly Bell, the author of The Murder of Marion Miley. It's super interesting about how, um, how women's amateur golf was, was perceived at that time. I think a couple things contributed to it. First of all, Bobby Jones retires in, in 1930 after winning the Grand, uh, Grand Slam, and he's he's obviously an amateur. Honestly, I think that was a blow to the men's game, um, losing him. 
And so you have that factor. So it kind of created a vacuum and also a door uh, for women to go through um, and, and build on this interest in this game. The second thing was obviously the depression. Um, you know, people were looking for entertainment that didn't cost a lot of money extremely challenging time um, for the for the country economically you know you just have these two these two different factors that kind of came together and it just created this intense interest in women's golf and the women weren't dummies uh, they they were smart in terms of capitalizing on it of being open uh to interviews and lots of press coverage. If you look at the women Marion was playing against, it doesn't take long to notice that these women, this era, was laying the groundwork for the LPGA Tour. The LPGA has 13 founders, and Marion played against six of them during her career. She beat every one. So how have we not heard of Marion Miley? an incredibly successful female golfer who also happened to be famous and gorgeous, she really sounds like someone we should all have heard about. Maybe if her career had been able to continue, she would have won the U.S. Women's AM, or she would have helped found the LPGA Tour. Then we'd all know her. But she never got that chance. She never got to see how far her career could go because of what happened in the middle of the night in her apartment at the Lexington Country Club. Marion lived with her mother, Elsie, in apartments in the clubhouse. Her mother was the office manager there, and her father, Fred, had been the pro there. He no longer was living or working there, however, because he'd accepted a higher-paying job as a pro at a club in Cincinnati. Marion was out on Saturday night playing cards with friends while her mom was at the dance at the club. Marion got back around midnight, and her mom came up to bed after the dance. At around three in the morning on September 28, 1941, two men broke into the Miley apartment. From all accounts, uh, the uh, the crime itself took um, took a very short period of time. Both men had brought guns in, and when Marion heard uh, someone breaking in through the through the door of the apartment, she jumped up. Her mother was screaming, and uh, Marion actually um, tackled one of the men. Um, he ended up over in the corner uh, after she sort of threw him to the ground. The men had cut the electricity of the apartment, uh, of the clubhouse as well, before entering. So all of this was happening in darkness. But after um, Marion overwhelmed one of the men, there was an exchange of, of gunfires or a firing of, of, of a gun by the, by the second gunman. And Marion's mother was shot three times and Marion was shot twice. One time at point blank range and in her head. And so she died instantly. And the men were after money. They, uh, they had received some, 
some faulty information about how much money was there. As office manager, Marion's mother would have kept the proceeds of that dance and then would have deposited them uh, on Monday morning when the bank was open again. The information had come from an inside source, the greenskeeper at Lexington Country Club, Raymond Baxter. He went by Skeeter. They made off with all of $130. Today, that'd be about $2,800. Clearly, Skeeter's estimation of how much money would be in the apartment was way off. They fled. Um, Marion's mother was still alive um, when the men left. And uh, she ended up basically crawling from the clubhouse to what's called a sanitarium, which was across the street uh, from the Lexington Country Club to try and get help for Marion. There was a massive um, manhunt. FBI came in, there were every sort of law enforcement agency department was, was weighing in on this case. It was written up on the it was on the front page of the New York Times the day after the crime, on the top of the fold, the second story. And it was, it was also written, not just in the United States, but it was written in uh, all over the world because Marion had competed internationally. So um, the story was written in France and Great Britain, um, Mexico, Canada, even as far as Australia. The, the men were eventually um, caught and uh, they were tried and they were given the death penalty. There was um, some appeals uh, and they ended up being executed uh, for the crime in February of 1943, which was about 18 months after the crime was committed. It was the city of Lexington, the state of Kentucky, but really the golf community this was so shocking. It, it was just unbelievable <laughs> that, it, that, it, that this could happen, that this could happen in a country club, especially of, of uh, the Lexington Country Club's um, stature. Beverly first came across the story by way of a conversation with her father-in-law. He grew up in Lexington and was 16 years old when Marion died. At first, she was shocked she'd never heard the traumatic story either. Marion's story and her death, um, I think, is one of the most tragic stories in all of sports history. Once you know it, it's just, it's too sad for words, really. Sports delivers great excitement and, uh, and disappointment and, uh, just like life, uh, a lot of um, tragedy that, um, that is shocking and um, makes us sit up and notice. The answer to why Marion's story has been lost is actually painfully simple. Look at the date. Marion died September 28, 1941. The whole story just disappeared. Why it disappeared was that ten, almost 10 weeks to the day after the crime was committed, um, the United States was um, attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, and everything became about the war. And the war effort. After the war, it was as if Marion had never even existed. So almost as if she died twice, killed in, in this in this crime, this heinous crime, and and then 
totally forgotten. It's understandable. You dominated the world. And, um, but in terms of her memory, it was totally lost. That's why I, I guess I wanted to, I, I wanted to write the story because I just wanted people to remember that there was this wonderful golfer and her name was Marion Miley and she was a brilliant light for 10 years. And then with just one bullet to the brain and she was gone forever. After first hearing about Marion back in the 1980s, her book was published in 2020. That's not to say that the only thing Beverly was doing during that time was working on the book. She had a job and was raising a family. I just started asking some questions. At that time, this was quite a few years back, there were several people still in Lexington, which uh, is where I live now and, and where I lived then, who were familiar with Marion, who remembered her. And uh, I remember that being the first thing I did, just sort of asking people, uh, you know, maybe people related to golf around here or, um, uh, you know, people connected to the Lexington Country Club, you know, where she, where she had, um, that was her home course. Um, and really just trying to get a sense, uh, trying to get my bearings, I guess, with the overall story. But she kept Marion in her mind always, taking advantage of opportunities to learn more about her whenever the chance arose. So I had an assignment to, uh, a writing assignment where I had to go down to Naples, Florida. Just before that trip, I learned about Fred Miley, Marion's father, the fact that, that he had remarried, that this woman's, his second wife's uh, name was Alice. And although Alice had already passed away at that point, I learned that Alice's sister also lived in Florida. So I knew I was going down on this other writing assignment. I tracked Alice's sister down and asked if she would talk to me about it. And she agreed. And so that was really the first in-depth, I would say, interview that I did along the storyline. And, and it was fascinating because she told me things that I never would have known uh, had, had, without that first person sort of knowledge. Um, so that's what happened. Um, I, just kept, I just kept following the trail and just kept compiling more and more materials and I put them in this uh, big plastic bin uh, that seemed to get bigger and bigger over the years. When you've been digging for as long as Beverly did, you're going to uncover some compelling details. Beverly interviewed everyone she could find who might know something about Marion and her murderers. She poured over newspaper archives, finding the local stories from cities where Marion was playing tournaments. She located the complete transcripts of the trial and appeals, where Tom Penny, Skeeter Baxter, and Bob Anderson were sentenced to death for their crimes. Beverly even found journals and scrapbooks that Marion herself had made. I have never seen so many different golf scores in a diary. I, I mean, it was like she would say, I played so-and-so, I did this. She would make some observation about her game or whatever. And it just, I just thought, uh, 
you know, golf never left her brain. Uh, she, it was always kind of a, it felt sometimes like a measuring stick, you know, she's, she's listing what she did, what she did well, what she didn't. And, um, and, and that was a, a very common entry into the diary. In terms of other materials, um, I did use uh, what turned out to be um, scrapbooks that she had put together. That's what any conversation about Marion has to come back to, the golf. Sure, Marion had a lot of other things going for her, and you get to experience all of that in the book. She had great friends, some of whom were famous, including Bing Crosby, who was said to have put up reward money to find Marion's killers. She had an interest in pursuing a career in medicine and the ability to write. She wrote for some publications on the tournaments she played in. She loved riding horses, gambling, and Florida for its beaches. But the daughter of a club bro who dedicated her life to the game with a fierce competitiveness was always thinking about golf. Honestly, uh, that was the part that made me nervous, that I, I just couldn't make any mistakes in the golf part. I had to kind of call through all of her, um, you know, her records, her, you know, everything, her, all of her play and determine, you know, which of those tournaments were the most important, which of the ones would really capture somebody. Um, because I had to assume that non-golfers would, would read this book people who might not know anything about the game. So how do I bring them in on this really important part of the story? So it was, yeah, it, it was, um, it was hard work, but it was important work to do. Throughout the book, readers get glimpses into Marion's golf life, recountings of tournaments, injuries, and victories, details of which were found in Marion's journals and scrapbooks. And Beverly found them all by happenstance. One of the people uh, that I ended up talking with was an older woman who told me that she had um, that she, that she had some Marion Miley things in her basement, and she didn't really know what they were. She had purchased the house, and they had been left behind. And but I was welcome to come and see them, and so I did it. And uh, one of the items um, were the scrapbooks. And of course, I didn't know who had assembled those scrapbooks when I saw them for the first time. But it just took me a few seconds when I realized what the heck they were. And, uh, and, I, and I just thought, my gosh, you know, but there was also a set of golf clubs and her watch and a bracelet. There were, you know, quite a few things in that basement. Beverly went to the real estate records and found that the woman had bought Francis Fritz Laval's home. Fritz was Marion's best friend. After Marion's death, Marion's father found it too hard to keep her belongings, so Fritz agreed to hold on to them until he was ready. He never asked for them back. So there they sat, in Fritz's basement, for decades. Welcome, fans and listeners of the Be Right Podcast. My name is Christopher Powers, and we need to have a serious chat. Uh, we are sad to report that we will no longer be known as the Be Right Podcast. I know Be Right loyalists just fell off their collective couches. We are now going to be known as the Loop Podcast. So we'll stick to our content. We'll stick to our great guests. 
but uh, we'll try to have a little more fun, talk about football and, and basketball and whatever else, you know, kind of piques our interest that particular day. So uh, we hope you stick with us. We hope you tell your friends, your family, everybody you know. Come listen to The Loop. Uh, like, subscribe, leave a rating, review. Uh, new chapter, exciting chapter. Um, we're pumped up. We hope you guys are too. Beverly's research extended beyond Marion, of course. One of the murderers, Tom Penny, was the first one caught. He was pivotal in identifying the other two. Beverly discovered that Tom Penny was actually the brother-in-law of an officer in the Lexington Police Department. She went further and found Penny's son, who had changed his name to distance himself from his father's crimes. From him, she was able to get the letters that Penny wrote to his mother while he was incarcerated. Those 70 letters gave insight into the crime, how Bob Anderson tried to deny it and the other ways he tried to evade punishment for his crimes, what it was like waiting out the appeals until finally knowing it was time for the three men to take responsibility for what they had done. Finally, when Beverly felt like her research was complete enough, she started writing. The book is technically a work of fiction because it includes dialogue and of the 141 people in the book, one of them is made up. But Beverly's extensive research makes this a historical lesson nonetheless. She was still working full-time when she started writing in 2013, so she would wake up at 4.30 in the morning and write until 6.30. It took her three and a half years, but she completed the book and got it published. It was a finalist for the USGA Herbert Warren Wind Book Award. With the book out in the world, Beverly has achieved what she's hoped for, greater awareness of Marion's story. I'll tell you, um, there were a lot of things that I, I wasn't prepared for um, or expected. Um, I, I didn't expect, uh, for example, I've, I've been able to present to a number of, of, of young women golfers, um, young, like high school, college, and I am just always so surprised about how involved they get in this story, how it connects with them. I'm assuming it's because of Marion's age, you know, since she was only 27 when she died. Um, but maybe it's also just because she was really grabbing every opportunity uh, that came her way. And people can respond to that regardless uh, of the um, of when she lived uh, or, or when she was um, taking advantage of opportunities. So that, that has been a surprise. I figured that people who are interested in history would like it and, and they do. Um, I figured that, uh, that it would have obviously appeal um, locally, and, which it does. Um, people are very, very invested in the story. There was a section of Beverly's book that I loved, where she was describing Marion. Quote, She loves to gamble. The dog track, horse racing, it doesn't really matter. As long as she can remain suspended in those few seconds when anything is possible. Hovering between exhilaration and disappointment, the uncertainty and excitement nipping at her heels. This is where Marion feels most alive. End quote. It sounds like the feeling right after you've made contact, right? If Marion lived for that feeling, it's no wonder she loved golf. 
Where else, other than golf, do you get to experience that feeling over and over again? And somehow, every time it feels new. As I've been sitting with this story, thinking about Marion and her mother, and all that was lost so quickly, so unfairly, I've been wondering why it is that her story has a way of hanging around in your mind. And I think we get invested in this story because there's so much to be inspired by once you learn about Marion. She was brave and strong, competitive and driven, beautiful and known. But it's also clear that there are no rules. There are no promises in this life. It makes you think about the joys and frustrations that you've felt on the golf course and wonder, briefly, that if life itself can be so fleeting, why do we bother getting caught up in a game? But that thought leaves as quickly as it comes. If life is fleeting, if there are no guarantees, then what could matter more than those moments on the golf course? Those moments Marion loved when anything is possible. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried, with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music is Moonlight Reprise by Kai Engel. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome a review as well. Also, for expert picks, betting advice, and insights into the action on the PGA Tour, please also make sure to subscribe to The Loop Podcast.